This is They Create World, Episode 21, The Great Video Game Crash, Part 3. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Last time, we went over the bulk of the crash. But we also want to cover a little bit of what happened with the arcade market and also some of the mythology that sort of developed as the history of the video game crash has become muddled in time and speculation and research. Absolutely right. It's one of these events that was so cataclysmic and so defining that it became larger in a way than itself, and it became very mythologized. And there's a lot of stuff that gets said about the crash and about the recovery from the crash that really isn't true. And then on the flip side of that, you also have a situation where some stuff that is kind of true got to be later discredited and really needs to be rehabilitated. So there's a lot of contradictory information that comes out of the crash and its aftermath, it's really good to kind of visit. But before we do that, we definitely should wrap up the other big crash that was going on at the same time. And that's the arcade crash. Exactly. It's not the same crash, but there is a big cycle that happens here because it goes through a big boom followed by a big bust as well. Okay, where does that start? 1979. It's introduced in 78, but really 79. Space Invaders just takes the world by storm. Yeah, we've already said that. The invader craze in Japan, all over Europe, all over the United States, it's everywhere. It's hard to overstate. Before Space Invaders, there were video games, but they had gone through kind of a cycle where Pong was very much a fad, and Pong was widely copied and widely imitated, both by direct clones and by ball and paddle games that just made very minor adjustments to that basic system. And so sales collapsed from 70,000 video games in 1973 to like 50,000 in 1974. I mean, the market just collapsed. And after that, it became a very low-key market. And pinball had a resurgence because they went to solid-state design, and that kind of brought the pinball market back. Pinball, you know, in like 77, 78, somewhere around there, about 200,000 pinball cabinets were being sold a year, and like 70,000 video games were being sold. I mean, pinball was clearly the king, and that doesn't even bring pool into it. People don't think of pool as a coin-operated game in the same sense as pinball and video games, because it's not in arcades and whatnot, but a lot of pool tables are actually coin-controlled, where you have to insert a coin to get the balls to release. Yep. And that's considered part of the coin-operated amusement industry, just like pinball and video games are. And and depending on where you are, I mean, there are bars I've been to where you have the coin-op pool table, but you also have along the side a few arcade cabinets, maybe even a pinball machine or two. Oh, absolutely. Those kind of things can can certainly be in bars. You know, video games were kind of this very low-key thing. Some people think that, you know, Pong came along and then video games were just the next 
new thing, but it actually took them some time. It really was Space Invaders, followed by Asteroids the next year, that really blew up the market. And the numbers are ridiculous. You know, there are a couple of trade publications that survey these things, and they they come up with slightly different results, and they report at different times a year. But Vending Times is one of the ones that has kind of consistently tracked and estimated the market. And these trade publications almost always underestimate the market, quite frankly, because since it's a cash-only business, Mm. a lot of operators under-report because they under-report their earnings to the IRS. (laughs) We don't want to pay as much in taxes. But it can still give you a sense of the scale. According to Vending Times, 1978, and that's not the calendar year because their reporting year is slightly different from the calendar year, but 1978 reporting year, arcade games took in about $308 million in quarters. Eh, kind of small potatoes. 1979, Space Invaders craze, $968 million. Eh, three times. Triple the earnings. 1980. Asteroids and Galaxian and, of course, still Space Invaders, all of that, $2.8 billion. Astronomical increase. In two years, you go from $308 million to $2.8 billion. Yeah, forget two years. The one year, even from <laughs> $900 million <laughs> to $2.8 billion. That, that's insane. It really is. That's quarters. We're, we're not talking like, hey, merchant, here's five bucks so I can play one round. This is, I come in here with, I can only presume, a bucket of quarters <laughs> and going, we're playing, we're playing, we're playing, we're playing. <laughs> exactly. It's unbelievable. Playmeter magazine, uh, which reports on a August to July reporting cycle. So... When Playmeter reports its figures for 1982, they're going through July 1982, not through the end of the year. Playmeter in July 1982 reports that the total coin take of coin-operated games, so this is video games but also pinball and the like, is now $8.9 billion. Consider that for a moment, kid. $8.9 billion. The entire record industry made $4 billion that year. Twice the record industry, and we all know in the 80s, music was cool. Hollywood films only made $3 billion at the box office. And we like movies. Right, and you have to remember, this is before the widespread adoption of VCRs. So today, box office alone isn't a very good indication of what Hollywood is making because they have so many residual streams of income from pay-per-view services to streaming services like Netflix to DVD and Blu-ray sales. Back then, there was a little bit of home video, but very little, because it was really only from 1984 or so on that VCRs really started to permeate the population. So that $3 billion was about all that Hollywood made. And think about that. That's $3 billion just for Hollywood, for movies. There's no Netflix. There's no Redbox. There's no blockbuster, even though it's gone now. Right. TV, but, I mean, back then, you didn't really have cable. It's over the air. You wanted to see a movie. You got in your car. You went to a movie theater, and you gave them money to watch a movie in a movie theater. And that $3 billion they're making, and the coin-op business is $8 billion. 8.9, almost $9 billion. Almost $9 billion. 
And Playmeter reports that $7.7 billion of that figure is from video games. So that's how important video games have become to the coin-op industry. They're almost that entire total. So pop music and Hollywood together, $7 billion, give or take. Which is about on par with just the video game aspect of the coin-op business, and that doesn't include the extra stuff. Exactly. This is one of the main forms of youth entertainment, mostly teenagers, in the United States. Period. Bar none. They're going to the arcade. That's what they are doing when they go out. Think about that. If you want some context to this, it all depends on what your age is. If you're Alex and I, my age, in your uh, early, mid-30s, ask your parents about this. They lived it. If you're younger than us um, at the time of 2016, and you're hearing this in the future, and you're younger than us at 2016, and say in your 20s or so, ask your grandparents. They lived this. It was the thing. And they were everywhere. They were in arcades, obviously. They were in convenience stores, 7-Elevens and whatnot. They were in supermarkets. They were in beauty salons. Pac-Man, which appealed very heavily to female audiences as well, was often found in beauty salons. They were in pizza parlors. They were in ice cream shops. Laundromats. Laundromats. Doctors were buying them to put in their waiting rooms. I would, yeah, I think uh, the dentist that I went to used to have such a machine. I'm not sure if you went to the same one, but there was a dentist that had an arcade machine that was set to free for play while you waited for your sibling or whatever, or you got to do one round if you were good during the checkup. Mm-hmm. Playmeter magazine defined for the purposes of its surveys an arcade as a location with 10 or more games in it. In, in July 1981, Playmeter reported that there were 10,000 arcades in the United States. In July 1983, they reported that there were 25,000 arcades in the United States. Nice. They were getting to be on literally every corner in some places. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, that kind of is what set the stage for their downfall and their destruction. Oversaturation again. Exactly. So we've discussed before... The arcade industry operates in kind of a three-tiered system. You have the manufacturers that create the games. You have the distributors that serve as the middleman and get the games from the manufacturers to the operators, which are the ones that actually place them in locations. So when the coin-op industry blew up like this, what you basically had happening was you had a lot of operators coming into the business that had never had any connection with coin-operated games before. The coin-op industry has always been very close-knit, very closed. It's kind of lots of distributors and operators going back decades. It's fathers and sons and grandsons all getting involved in the business. That's kind of what it had always been. So this was really quite a shock to the system, having all of these operators in. And they really just oversaturated the market. And, I mean, distributors sold to them, so they bear some of the blame for this as well, certainly. But the main thing is, is you had arcades opening on every corner. You had arcade games going in everywhere. And these games, because an arcade cabinet's fairly expensive, were being bought on credit. Uh-oh. Right, because you recoup the cost then through the coin drop. So you had a lot of people that had no idea how this business worked suddenly buying a lot of equipment, equipment on credit to get into this business. That's never going to end well. 
And we're talking a significant amount of money here. These machines. A couple thousand, yeah. Easily per machine. And mm-hmm. if you were to be classified as an arcade, you need at least 10. So you're looking at $20,000, $30,000 at a base level. Yeah, if you're setting up a full arcade, some people were just putting them in street locations. But still, you're talking about a significant outlay in capital. And the other thing is, is that video games in the arcade became a hits-driven business. In the earlier part of the decade, it was quite possible for a hit arcade game, something like Seawolf, that sold 10,000 units, which was a phenomenal hit. You know, Compare that to 60,000 Space Invader cabinets, and you'll see how far the industry went. Something like Seawolf could remain a top earner for a year or more. And as a result, you had a very much a thriving secondary market. So kind of the market took care of itself because you'd have the big guys with the good locations would buy the game brand new. And they'd keep it in their location three, four, five months, whatever. And then when they were ready to rotate to the next game, they could then resell that game to someone further down the chain there would still be interest in playing that game because it wasn't an overheated market. It could just become a nice little time waster in some small out-of-the-way location. And so that operator gets that game for less, and the original operator recoups some of their cost on the game. And so you had this whole kind of ecosystem. After Space Invaders, that didn't work anymore. Game players only wanted the latest, hottest, bestest game. It got to the point where a game was stale after it had been on location just two or three months. And they had zero resale value. So you couldn't recoup any cost on the back end. So you had operators, even the established experienced ones, having to constantly update their inventory every three months or so with no way to recoup any of their investment on the older game. That works as long as each game you buy becomes a massive hit. It doesn't work when the market starts getting flooded with more and more games from more and more manufacturers and individual games aren't necessarily doing as well anymore. So Space Invaders was a massive hit at 60, 65,000. It was followed by Asteroids, which was a hit at 70,000, which was followed by Defender, which was a hit at 55,000, which was followed by Pac-Man, which was the huge hit at 96,000, which was followed by Donkey Kong, which was a huge hit at like 60,000 units sold. There really wasn't, in 1982, a follow-up to that. There was Ms. Pac-Man, which did quite well. But other than that, while there were some games that did very well that sold 20, 25,000 units, the big sellers kind of started to dry up. So there weren't as many big hits. You were still having to constantly replenish your inventory with new games. Mm Mm-hmm. But the audience was scattering amongst the various games being manufactured. And so you didn't have these surefire hits anymore. And so the coin drop on games was, you know, starting to decline, not on an industry-wide basis yet, but just in terms of individual arcades, not necessarily recouping their investment or individual street locations, street operators. By the middle of 1982, this kind of constant need to refresh the inventory has finally left distributors and operators so strapped that sales of new games basically grind to a halt. They don't go away entirely, but the entire market just kind of... They can't sustain switching out their entire inventory every three months. Exactly. Especially when you're talking at those prices of two to 3000 a machine. Right. And you see, it's fascinating. 
as early as 1981, Sega tried to introduce kits to the arcade industry. A kit is basically a board and some cabinet stickers and some cabinet art that you slap into a pre-existing cabinet. So you swap out the old board, swap out the old art, put in the new stuff, and then you have a brand new game at a fraction of the cost because the cabinet and the monitor are a good portion of what you're actually paying for when you're paying for a new game. So if you just have to change out a circuit board and change out some decals, life is good. When the industry was doing well, nobody wanted that. Operators didn't want them. Distributors didn't want them. Maybe operators would have wanted them if operators knew they existed. I should take that back a little bit. But distributors definitely didn't want them because distributors could make money selling a full game. And while the market was flush, operators had the money to buy a full game. So the industry actually resisted efforts that could have continued to make the arcade viable in this period. If they had switched from a full upright cabinet kind of model to just swapping out internal components, maybe they could have sustained themselves because that would be easier to switch out on a more rapid basis. But nobody was interested in that. And upright cabinets are expensive, and they just couldn't keep replacing them like that. So the arcade market collapsed. There were too many arcades. Arcades started closing down. Uh, Of course, a lot of those games were bought on credit. So then the losses start piling back up because the operator can't pay off the distributor. The distributor can't pay off the manufacturer. Nobody's getting paid down the line. And because distributors are selling less, they can't buy as much from manufacturers. So manufacturers are caught in a crunch. It was, in some ways, a much simpler crash than the crash that hit the home market. It's a bit of a different one, too. Mm -hmm. And it didn't quite kill the market in quite the same way. Between, you know, that it hit that high of 8.9 billion in the middle of 1982, which is right before it kind of started crashing. The low two years later in 1984 was about 4 billion. So the market lost half its value. Which is significant. That's hugely significant. And a couple of the weaker companies did end up going out of business. But it wasn't a complete collapse of the infrastructure. It was basically more of a market correction than a crash. A severe market correction. But still a correction, because basically too many newcomers had come in and didn't know what they were doing and overheated the market, and then all the newcomers got out. I mean, some long-standing people also were affected, obviously, and uh, there were operators and distributors of long-standing that went out of business, too. But it was mostly too many new people coming in, all the new people leave. And so it was a real shock to the system, and the arcade video game was never as important again. It wasn't anywhere near what happened to the home industry. And so that's why a lot of people just say the video game industry crashed in 1983. And when they say the video game industry, they're talking about the home and the arcade. Because it just happened at roughly the same time for both of them. Even though the arcade, it was more of a glut of people coming into the system and buying everything on credit and effectively crashing sort of like the stock market when you buy stock on credit. As far as the home market goes, it was more of a, we oversaturated the actual retail outlets with too much product tried to develop things in a way that the market wasn't ready for by trying to do this PC transition 
pretty much decade before it was even viable, which is arguably now. Right. Because they uh, did that, they just shot themselves in the, in the foot, pretty much. Right. I mean, in the in the home market, it was it was basically that they didn't understand their market, right? As as we talked about already, where nobody understood what the impact of a third party developer would be. Nobody understood what a console life cycle actually was. That there was actually an end shelf date that you had to adhere to, and nobody understood that computers weren't what everyone thought computers were going to be. In the arcade industry, people understood the industry pretty well. As we talked in previous episodes, the industry went all the way back to the 1930s and even further back. But what you might consider the quote-unquote modern arcade industry really goes back to the 1930s. So everyone understood what the industry was all about. And people weren't necessarily taken too much by surprise by the trends in the industry. It's just too many people tried to get rich quick. It felt very easy because it's hard to just go out and make a movie without studio support and make a lot of money. You can kind of do it in music, but you still have to have talent to be able to do that in music. And you still have to have some kind of connections. In this case, all you had to do was show up and offer to buy a machine on 90 days credit or whatever and find someone that was willing to put the machine in the store. And everyone wanted a machine in their store. You didn't need any particular talent or ability so it was very easy to become an operator in this period. But just because it was easy to become an operator didn't mean it was easy to be good at being an operator. It's a uh, low barrier to entry and high barrier to succeeding. Exactly correct. The one really has no bearing on the other. I mean, certainly the home industry would have been impacted by the slowdown in the arcade, because in that period of time, most of the best-selling product was arcade conversion product. The best-selling games of the era were Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Defender, Asteroids, Space Invaders. These were the top-selling games. Once there were no more games coming out of the arcade, and once people were no longer interested in going to the arcade and playing those games and therefore carrying that interest over into the home, that was going to hit the home industry. But the thing is, the home industry was already in the process of imploding itself before that happened. By the time the home industry had reached the point that they were out of significant arcade games to convert, they were already stuck in discount hell. And a hot new arcade game wasn't going to pull them out of discount hell. Plus, you were already starting to see companies like Activision and Magic, the third parties, experience success with unique product. Pitfall had never been a arcade game first. Demon Attack had never been an arcade game first. Cosmic Arc had never been an arcade game first. So you really can't say that the loss of interest in the arcade or whatever translated over into the home industry. And you certainly can't play, say, vice versa, because the arcade was always the leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, the home topped out at $2.8 billion or maybe $3.2 billion, if some of the later news articles from the late 80s have it right instead. That's still $5 billion less than what the arcade topped out as. That would be the tail wagging the dog. The home going down wouldn't have diminished the ardor for the arcade. The arcade just overheated itself, and it got into a situation where people couldn't keep replacing their inventory, and they finally hit a wall where there were 
kind of no hot new games ready to go. And so it kind of created that perfect storm to just blow the market up. But it didn't die because arcades were still popular. Pinball made a nice resurgence. Mm -hmm. And then the arcade games came back later. We talked a little bit about that in our History of the Arcade episode, so we don't have to go into too much detail again. But suffice it to say, it was a crash, but it wasn't nearly like the crash in the home. And arcade video games did not die. I I do like your thing of saying it was a severe correction because Mm -hmm. if I'm going to see a crash, I'm going to really view that, at least from my layperson viewpoint, of I'm hitting a reset button here and the entire thing is wiped out and is, for all intents and purposes, non-existent. The home market, I can definitely see that if you're going from billions to barely a hundred million. That to me says this is a reset. I think the only reason you had that hundred million is probably whatever's still left in the glut of systems. Right. Plus a teensy weensy bit of Nintendo from their test market. Just right. Smidge, but, tiny bit. Right. But that's not significant and that's not Exactly. I don't think relevant. Are you an industry that's actually viable if I were to make the next Wizwang and I can sell a hundred thousand Wizwang for thirty bucks and Yeah, I'm an industry now. Right. Not not really. We we talked about what makes an industry before. Mm -hmm. That's a big reset. The arcade industry, I think from what you've told me, it did not crash. It severely corrected itself. It had a severe downturn. It could have been depressed. I could use one of those three terms. Preferably, I like the severe correction. The arcade industry didn't reset. It didn't bottom out in such a way that everything's wiped out and you need to pretty much rebuild the whole thing from scratch. It just severely recorrected itself and just lost half its value because it just overheated in a bubble. Exactly. You know, very few companies did go out of business because the the top six arcade companies in the United States, and you have to understand that some of these companies were largely importing Japanese product, very few of the Japanese companies actually had a manufacturing presence in the U.S. They were going through Japanese companies. So the top six companies in the United States were Bally Midway, Atari, Williams, Sega, which at this time, it's kind of complicated, but we talked about this a little in the previous episode. Sega was an American company with a Japanese subsidiary, even though it had started as a Japanese company company founded by Americans. So, you know, it's kind of odd like that. It's all over the place. Centuri, which was strictly a licensor of other people's games. They didn't make their own games. And Stern Electronics. Those were the top six arcade companies during the height of the industry here. Of those companies, the lower three, Stern, Centuri, and Sega, were the ones that were disrupted the most. Stern went out of business. Centuri didn't go out of business, but it sold off its video game business. And Sega closed up its American operations. The Japanese company was still going very strong, but it stopped being an American company and became a Japanese company again. Question. Mm-hmm. Stern Electronics, did that have any relation to Stern Pinball? Gary Stern, same, same guy. Okay, so is that the same company or no. is it just two separate things? Gary Stern founded Stern Electronics by purchasing the leftover assets of Chicago Coin, which was an old school pinball company, and he created it to be a pinball company. 
Then they got into video games, of course, when the video boom happened. They were destroyed in the crash. He went off and founded a new company until he was hired by Data East, which wanted to found a pinball division. So Gary Stern became the head of Data East Pinball. Data East Pinball became Sega Pinball in the mid-90s when Data East sold it. Sega Pinball was sold at the end of the 90s. Not sold, closed. And then after that, Gary Stern founded Stern Pinball. Okay, so that's how that came <laughs> that's, about. That's the brief history <laughs> of Gary Stern uh, in the business. So related, but no, not the same company. Okay. So the bottom three companies, one went away, one got out of the industry, and one closed up shop in the United States. The top three all survived. They were all severely hurt, but they all survived. So that's very different from the home console industry where nobody survived. Coleco and Mattel almost went bankrupt and were saved at the last minute and got the heck out of video games. Atari, the consumer part of the company, was broken up. You know, Atari Corporation of Jack Trammell was actually technically a different company. And then Atari Games was the arcade company, and that's what was left of the original Atari. So the arcade subsidiary survived. The rest was sold off. And, you know, Activision was really the only one that made it out. A Magic fell apart. Parker Brothers got out. So you're looking at an industry that every single player, with the exception of one, was destroyed. And the one that did stay in was severely wounded. In the arcade, of the top six companies, three stayed in, even though they reduced their video game output. Three stayed in entirely. One of them really still existed. It was just a Japanese company now, and only two of the companies went away. So again, you know, that's not a complete crash of the industry, because two-thirds of your major manufacturers survived, sort of, mm -hmm. just severely wounded. So yeah, it's, it's incorrect to consider what happened in the arcade market to be in any way tied to the great video game crash, but they've always been linked because they just happened right at the same time, and they involved similar products and, in some cases, similar companies. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That pretty much gives us a really good overview of the home crash, the stuff that led up to it, and some of the reality of the situation there. And as we said before, it, I'd probably say about 70% Atari's fault and probably 30% distributors and retailers' fault. That seem fair? Yeah, or maybe 60-40. But I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's, not a, it's not a science trying to predict something like that. But yeah, you know, it's around there. Or maybe you go 70 or 60, 30, and then give 10% of the blame to the, the really crappy fly-by-night companies that overheated the market. I mean, they could have never killed the market all by themselves, but... They certainly added gas to the fire. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so we got that. That crashes out. We got the arcade industry that severely corrects itself at the same time. Mm -hmm. From the person who's looking back... What is some of the mythology that sort of developed around this sort of thing? Because, I mean, we've really touched on it from a very factual, this happened, this happened, this happened, that happened, and gone over it, all of this. But you know, the sense that I've always got whenever I, it's come up in conversation, not necessarily with you, but when it's come up with conversation outside, the mythology out of it, it's almost like this epoch event where you had before the crash, after the crash, and it, it's almost like the rebuilding of a civilization and <laughs> fire or something. And then you got like heroes and villains and good versus evil and all sorts of crazy stuff and try to correct a few of the myths mm -hmm. there. 
especially like blaming Atari single-handedly, blaming E.T., blaming Pac-Man. Right. What are some of the other things that a lot of people just sort of come up with that sort of developed in its own mythology with the crash? Well, a lot of people speak to the quality of the games. We touched on this briefly earlier in the episode. This idea that people got sick of buying video games because the video games got very bad. Some examples that are always brought up, Pac-Man is one example that's always brought up because the flickering graphics, but as we've already explained, Pac-Man sold very well. Chase the Chuck Wagon is another one that always comes up. It was kind of a Pac-Man clone kind of thing masquerading as a corporate game because it was based on Purina. Dog food had a advertising campaign that involved the, the Chuck Wagon and the dog chasing it. And so they created kind of this maze game that was crappy. Another one that comes up is the adult games, Custer's Revenge. Oh, yeah. Which is truly an awful game, but I doubt it had much impact. But here's the thing. Chase the Chuck Wagon, for instance. It was a promotional game. It wasn't sold in stores. It was a mail-order game where you send proofs of purchase into Purina, and you would get a video game. It's like when Burger King did those cheap little silly video games a few years ago, like Sneak King and whatnot. It wasn't in stores. People weren't seeing Chase the Chuck Wagon in stores and being like, oh my God, what have video games come to? They're selling dog food commercials in stores. Right. It's just a cross promotion that some company does as part of their advertising budget. And yeah, the game is not that good. It's like any kind of cross promotion toy. It just makes you think of the company. But it's not like people were buying it in stores and becoming horribly disappointed and being like, why did I ever buy a video game? About Purina. Yeah, and, you know, the Custer's Revenge and the couple of other games, adult games that came out, I mean, obviously they attracted some press. It's not like you could go to Sears and buy that thing. I mean, nobody was selling it. I bet the majority of people buying Atari VCS software never knew that Custer's Revenge existed. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was crude and awful, but it wasn't like Death Race in the arcade in 1976 or Mortal Kombat in the arcade in 1992-93, where it created a national firestorm and calls for reform and control, regulation, and all of that. There were articles written about it. I mean, it's not like it passed completely unnoticed, but I don't think most of these bad games really had that wide an exposure. And so I don't think they probably did that much damage to the industry. People also point to companies getting into the industry that had no business being there. The biggest one of those is Quaker Oats. (laughs) Quaker Oats got into the video game industry. They founded a division called U.S. Games. And people are like, you know things are bad when, like, the oatmeal company thinks that they can make video games. We see what they don't understand is at that period of time, Quaker Oats was a conglomerate. In the late 60s and early 70s, and and even on a little bit beyond that, it was very popular in the corporate world to conglomerize, which means that you basically, instead of focusing on one industry, you would buy companies in a lot of different industries. You diversify, therefore you're better able to weather problems if one part of your company is not doing so well, the other parts that are can help pull you through. Right. And the thing that I don't think people realize is at the time, Quaker Oats owned Fisher Price. Really? Right. Which Fisher is Fisher Price, toy- the, the little toy thing we give our kids before they're 
allowed to play with the other toys. Right. The company, the Quaker Oats Company, named after its oatmeal, they had a lot of other businesses. They owned Fisher-Price, and it's not like it was a recent purchase. They bought Fisher-Price in 1969. So Quaker Oats had been in the toy business since 1969. They still own Fisher-Price? No, no, they sold them off many, many years ago. Uh, and Mattel owns it now, owns the brand. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of people looking back, in a lot of the histories, Quaker Oats is always given an example of, and companies that had no business getting into video games, like Quaker Oats were getting into video games. Quaker Oats have been in the toy business for over a decade at that point. It's just people today don't associate Quaker Oats with Fisher-Price. So, right, did U.S. games make any particularly good games? No, not really. But it didn't have anything to do with Quaker Oats as a company being the type of company that should not be in video games because they were already in toys. And we've already established that pretty much every single toy, major toy company, is getting into video games because that's sort of the thought at the time is that these are geared at kids. These games are the new fad. We need to put out the new fad. Right. Of the major toy companies, Hasbro is basically the only one that didn't get into the video game industry. All the others did. Mattel got in, Milton Bradley got in, Parker Brothers got in. I guess Tonka didn't get in at this time. They they get in later by distributing the Master System. But, right, the majority of the major toy companies got in the business. So Quaker Oats getting in the business is not that big of a stretch when you put it in those terms. I think that's something that gets overstated, the idea that people were making games that they shouldn't make, like adult games or corporate tie-in games, or the companies were getting in that shouldn't get in, like Quaker Oats. I think that aspect of it is overblown. Now, there were certainly plenty of companies that should have never gotten in. There were companies making bad games. But when you have 200% of market demand you're going to have a problem no matter what. And maybe if some of those small fly-by-night companies hadn't gotten in, you wouldn't quite have 200% of market demand. But you were still going to have too much because Atari was going full speed ahead like they still owned the market, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. So even if only companies like Activision and Parker Brothers and Imagic, good, solid, upstanding video game creators, had been putting product into the channels there was still going to be too much product because retailers were ordering more than they needed and Atari was making more than the market could stand. It's a little bit of a of a thing, but it's not a huge thing. You know, the E.T. thing, the myth that they buried all those cartridges in the desert, that's kind of considered the like low point of, of video games when they had to take millions of E.T. cartridges and bury them in the desert. Now, they did bury stock. I don't know all the details of the financial thing, but I think what it comes down to is that if you get rid of the stock in a way where you're not just strictly destroying it, you can report it differently in a way that helps your bottom line. A real financial person would have to explain that one. But there, there was a financial benefit to burying the stock rather than reselling or destroying the stock. Well, reselling, they just couldn't resell it. This is stuff they've gotten back from retailers already. And burying was preferable to just destroying for whatever financial reason. So they did bury return stock. It was not an uncommon practice. It's not like it's something Atari invented. They weren't the first ones to ever bury stock or anything. 
They did bury some ETs out in that desert landfill, but it was never an ET burial. And the thing is, it's an urban legend that never had to exist. The burial was reported on at the time it happened in the local newspapers. Mm -hmm. In the pre-internet days, it was only reported in the local newspapers. Well, actually, the New York Times had a brief blurb on it, so it even was somewhat reported in the national newspapers, which is probably why people heard of it in the first place. And keep really keyed in on it. Most of the coverage, the in-depth coverage, was local. And pre-internet, you know, the Alamogordo, New Mexico paper or whatever, doesn't get any play outside Alamogordo, you know. Mm -hmm. So the truth was actually always out there. It wasn't some big cover-up conspiracy, but it got lost over time. And then it got warped. It's like they buried millions of ETs, and then someone else will say, well, they couldn't have possibly buried millions of ETs. That's got to be an urban legend. And, of course, they couldn't possibly have buried millions of ETs. So the people that thought it was an urban legend because it was an ET burial, you know, were almost correct. But they lost sight of the fact that there was a burial. So they did bury some stock. Most of the stock they buried out in New Mexico was actually from a plant closing. Now, they did bury returns as well, but they were doing that mostly in California. The company had a plant in El Paso, which is there near the border in Texas, and they closed down the plant because as part of trying to save money, they were shifting as much as they could of their manufacturing to overseas to places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. Right. So they were closing the factory, and they had a lot of half-completed stuff and completed but never shipped stuff and, and all of this stuff that they had to clear out of the factory because it was closing down. So there was some ET stock in there, but only amounting to, you know, some number of thousands or tens of thousands or whatever, not millions. There were a lot of other games, and it wasn't just games. It was also peripherals and components, hardware components and all of that stuff, too. And so that was dug up the other year. You know, that landfill was actually dug up and they found the burial, which finally proved once and for all that there was a burial. They kind of, the documentary, to make it dramatic, kind of played up the fact that they found ETs there and kind of tried to play up the fact that it means the E.T. burial was true all along. And uh, no, <laughs> the burial was true all along, but it was not an E.T. burial. And even so, even with this documentary, it's still kind of hard to get into people's heads that no, this was not an E.T. burial. It was a wide-ranging burial of Atari software, peripherals, and hardware components that did, in fact, include some E.T.s. It just happened to have some E.T.s, but it's not about the E.T. That's right. So the burial thing is always taken as this big symbol. And it was a symbol in a way of, of the way that things were falling apart, but just not in the way that most people think. And then there's the whole home computers were stealing the market, and we already did that, discussed that to death. So there's this mythology that Pac-Man and E.T. came in and ruined the market, and all the bad games and all the adult games and all of that ruined the market, and then video games went away. And then you had the people on the other side, and we talked about this in our Nintendo episode, who mythologize the other way and say, well, video games didn't go away. I never stopped playing video games. I just started playing them on my computer. And it's like, yes, you did. And some of your friends did. But, but you are a special snowflake. That's right. Most people did not. Uh, the home computer games market, it's harder to find estimates of that kind of stuff, so I don't have any figures directly on hand. But I guarantee you, the home computer game market in 1983 or 1984 never got anywhere near $2.8 billion. Yes, floppy disks are cheaper than cartridges, and yes, there was piracy. So there's going to be some discrepancy in the sales figures, but... No, that just 
wasn't the same level of market. There were, you know, 15 to 20 million Atari VCS systems sold in this kind of formative period. I think closer to 15 than 20. There weren't nearly 15 million home computers sold in this time period. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even remotely close to 15 million. Yeah. I'm not even sure there were 5 million sold in this time period. There might have been, but certainly not 10 million and certainly not 15 million. And that's just VCSs. That doesn't count the three odd million in televisions, the two to three million ColecoVisions and the one to two million Odyssey 2s that were sold on top of the 12 to 15 million Atari 2600s. So no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's there's this been this attempt on the other end to say, well, the crash never really not that the crash never happened, but that the crash didn't mean what people think it means, because it wasn't that people stopped playing video games. It was that they just started playing them on computers instead of consoles. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. On the flip side, there are some of the early histories tried to portray the public as having lost interest in video games. I remember hearing things like that. And this is, again, it's the bad game theory. Games got so bad that people didn't want to buy them anymore, essentially. My guess is that people did not necessarily get tired of video games. They probably continued to play some of the games they had at home and whatnot. It's just they were buying that remaindered inventory. New games weren't being introduced, and the public wasn't demanding new games. It's kind of... We're happy. We don't need anything new. We're good. But I if, got all these games. But if something new would come along, and maybe they even, and a lot of them even stopped playing video games, maybe, because there was nothing new. But if there had been new product and it was saleable, you know, some of them would have probably continued to buy them. I mean, I think people, it turns out, were pretty content to buy new video games if they were placed in front of them, which is why the market revived a couple of years later. It was retailers and distributors that did not want to have anything to do with new video games anymore once they no longer were profitable. But the retailers came back when Nintendo had a new system and the channels had been cleared of all that glut of product. Toys R Us got burned in the video game crash, but when Nintendo came to Toys R Us and said, we'd like to sell video games through you guys, Toys R Us... Special room. Toys R Us uh, signed on, you know, very early. Not everybody signed on early, but Toys R Us was one of the ones that did. So it's, it's not fair to say that the public stopped buying video games because they thought the quality had gone down or because they didn't like video games anymore. It, it was really, you know, macroeconomic factors like the inability of publishers to turn a profit on games anymore and too much product in the channel and, and all of that stuff, rather than consumer tastes, I think. The other thing that people often talk about these days this is a more recent thing. The established narrative used to be that industry died mm-hmm. and Nintendo brought it back. More recently, there have been some that have wanted to muddy that narrative and say that, no, you can't give credit to Nintendo for bringing it back because their market test in New York didn't really go all that well. And then in 1986, you had three companies introducing video games and the press was paying attention to all three companies equally and so it was really having three companies be interested in bringing video games back all at the same time that got the press excited and then the press got consumers excited and that's what revived the industry and yes 
Nintendo is the company that ended up with the lion's share of the sales, but it was all three companies together, Nintendo, Sega, and Atari, that brought the industry back just by being there. Mm -hmm. I don't really buy that. First of all, the Nintendo test market was a success. Now, Nintendo introduced 100,000 systems into the New York market. That's it, 100,000 NES systems. They officially claimed that they sold 90,000. Mm-hmm. Some sources seem to indicate that they may have only sold 50,000. Hmm. Which is only half the systems. So that would be a lot less successful if that's truly what happened. But you would only consider that a failure if the end goal of that test market was to get consumers to buy your product. But that really wasn't the point of the test market. It wasn't. I would think it would. Well, it's nice if consumers do buy your product. The point was to convince retailers to carry the product. That was the important thing. Because, as we just said, it wasn't a consumer lack of interest that led to the collapse of the video games. It was a retailer lack of interest that led to the market bottoming out. Mm -hmm. It was pretty safe to assume, I mean, retailers didn't assume it, but it was pretty safe to assume that if you put a new video game in front of consumers, consumers were probably going to be interested in it if you marketed it well and you provided good software, and et cetera, et cetera. And Nintendo had ample evidence of that because what a lot of people don't realize is Nintendo was raking it in the arcade in this period of time. The arcade industry on a whole had corrected and was much lower volume, and a lot of the video game companies were having trouble, but Nintendo was cleaning up. They had their VS system, their Versus system, mm -hmm. which was an interchangeable system where once you bought the cabinet, you could swap out software made specifically for it. It's you know like the Neo Geo later, which was a cartridge-based system that was in the arcade, and then they made a home version that was very famous. They had this interchangeable system that they were constantly pumping out new software for, which was they were basically pumping out the software that would be in the NES. Games like Duck Hunt and Hogan's Alley and some of the early sports games were Probably all... looked a little bit better because you had better capabilities with having an arcade cabinet. And, you know, it was this same kind of stuff that was being produced for the NES. They had kind of rejiggered their arcade business around using the same software that they were making for the home in Japan. So they knew, and this is what a lot of people I don't think realize, they knew that the games that they had available for the NES, like Duck Hunt and Hogan's Alley and Baseball and what have you, were popular with American consumers. Because American consumers were playing them in the arcade. So why wouldn't they want to play it at home? And these were actually kind of identical. You were talking about how they'd be a little better in the arcade. In this case, not. Not because they couldn't have been better in the arcade, but because the, the Nintendo strategy was basically taking the games that they developed for the home system, which by this point had been released in Japan, and releasing them in the arcade as well. So instead of it being a port from arcade to home, it was more of a port from home to arcade. And because you're going from a less capable system to a more capable system, the arcade can just go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Right. So they knew they had games the consumers liked. So I don't think they were particularly concerned with whether they sold 
you know, 10,000 systems or 90,000 systems, as long as retailers were interested in stocking the system. I mean, obviously, if they sold 10,000 systems and because they only sold 10,000, all the retailers were like, wow, <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. We're done. Thank you. Goodbye. That would be a negative outcome. Mm -hmm. But if they sold 50,000 systems, even if they only sold 50,000, which is possible, all the retailers, all the major retailers that they worked with in New York were interested in continuing to carry the system and expanding the system nationwide. So that was the victory. Just showing the fact that you can at least carry this even if it's a limited amount and it's going to sell. You're not going to lose money. Right. So those that today want to call the test market a failure because they may have only sold half their systems are quite frankly, in my opinion, missing the point. Toys R Us wanted to go national right away after that. And I don't know if some of the others did too, but I mean, Toys R Us was really gung-ho about this thing. Now, this is according to Bruce Lowry, who was the head of sales for uh, the Nintendo of America's consumer division during all this. So he was right in the thick of this. They didn't have the inventory to do it right away. So they proceeded to do a series of additional test markets. They did a Los Angeles test market, then they moved like to Chicago. They did a small number of markets in the early part of the year and then were national by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. The Los Angeles test market was very successful by all measures. I mean, they sold a decent number of systems and, and they got retailers excited. They got very little press. It's kind of funny, as I talked to Gail Tilden, who was doing a lot of the marketing, and she said kind of the biggest difference between the New York and the Los Angeles test markets is they could get no press in Los Angeles. They even staged a, a celebrity kind of tournament in, in one of the parks where they got some you know child celebrities and whatnot to play games and whatnot. They couldn't get any press outlets to cover it. Hmm. So they didn't get a lot of press, but you know the sales were were good. And so they were already experiencing success before the CES where Atari and Sega even announced that they were bringing in their new systems. Now, Atari had already released the, or were at least preparing to release, there's some mixed messages on that, the uh, 2600 Junior, which was a cost-reduced version of the uh, Atari 2600, the VCS. So they had already kind of gotten back in. But I mean, their real launch back into the business was launching the 7800. Sega was launching the Master System. But there was really, there was no, in the Sega case, there was no brand recognition. It really was not a well-known company at this point. They had left the U.S. market in the arcades in 1983. They had just come back in 1985 into the U.S. market. Uh, with Sega Enterprises USA, not to be confused with Sega of America. This is the arcade subsidiary. But they had no presence in retail. Nobody kind of knew who they were in retail. And Nintendo had already made a name for themselves through these test markets. And Sega didn't really have very much success at all getting their master system very good retail distribution. The other thing we talked about before the Nintendo is they went through Worlds of Wonder for their distribution. So they won over some retailers with their test market. Mm -hmm. They won over other retailers because basically Worlds of Wonder had two of the top toys of the time, Teddy Ruxpin and Laser Tag. And if anyone wanted to hear about those, then they also had to hear the pitch about the NES. Mm. Didn't mean they had to carry the NES, but... At least you're being it, exposed it to it. It opened doors. So it was only Nintendo that was opening doors with retailers. Sega didn't have the brand recognition. 
and Atari was working against the horrific reputation of Jack Trammell, which now owned Atari Corporation, who was known for not dealing squarely with retailers. You know, he started by going to computer stores because that's where he sold computers. Then he decided to get into the mass market. So then he went to the mass market retailers and got the Commodore computers into Kmart. Well, he gave Kmart a deal on the computers, so Kmart was selling them for a lot lower price. And he didn't give any warning to his specialty dealers that they were going to do that to give them a chance to get rid of some of their inventory. So he stuck a bunch of the specialty computer stores with suddenly worthless Mm -hmm. inventory because it was too expensive. And then, you know, he would do a price cut here and not tell these people he was doing it. You know, he'd ship out a bunch of computers and then immediately afterwards do a price cut. So all the computers that were just bought at this price wholesale are now too expensive versus these. So retailers hated. Jack Trammell. So Atari was never going to have very widespread distribution vis-a-vis some of these other guys because Jack Trammell had alienated people. So yeah, they all got equal press coverage, but the press's job is merely to report what's happening. At the time of CES in June 86, there's really not much to, to speak of. I mean, Nintendo's sold a few systems, but they've only had test markets. The other two are just coming in. So the news story is three companies are selling video game systems. So, of course, that's the news story, but that doesn't mean anything. They're not doing any analysis about that. They're right. just saying. We were at CES and we saw that three companies were offering video games and no one's offered video games for a long time. That's the reporting. Mm -hmm. Once it was clear the NES was winning the sales war, then the reporting came to be all about Nintendo's beating everyone in sales. What the press isn't going to report on to the general public, because the general public doesn't care, is who's winning the fight for doors, which is the slang term for retail outlets selling your product. Mm -hmm. You know, how many doors that you have. Who's winning the get the stuff in the store. Right. And that was clearly Nintendo. That's what all the historical information's come out since shows. So it wouldn't have mattered if Sega and Atari had come in in 1986 or not. Video games were coming back because of what Nintendo and what Nintendo's third parties did. Video games would have clearly come back even if Sega and Atari hadn't been there at that exact moment. So I don't like this attempting to downplay Nintendo. Oh, their test market was a failure. And oh, Yeah, they were there, but Sega and Atari were there, too, and nobody knew at the time who was going to be the winner. It's like, well, if you looked at how many retail partners each of them had, and if you looked at how much hot software each of them had, well, yeah, you could kind of tell who was going to be the winner. That's another one of these things that tends to downplay. I think Nintendo deserves all the credit in the world for what they did to bring the home console market back. And we brought that up in our Nintendo Playing With Power episode. mm -hmm. They really did. I mean, I thanked them for it. Yeah. And Atari couldn't have done it. Just because, A, Jack Trammell just had that bad retail reputation. B, Jack Trammell was just not as interested in video games. Now, this has been overstated. There are a lot of stories that say that Jack Trammell basically had zero interest in video games and that he only released the 7800 after Nintendo made it big because he figured it could fund his computer at that point. The truth is, Jack Trammell was always planning to leverage the Atari video games. And the reason he couldn't release the 7800 right away was that we talked about before where he didn't actually own the 7800 Hmm. because it was a Warner deal, not an Atari deal. And what he bought was Atari's consumer and home computer divisions. The 7800 remained with Warner. 
and you see Warner still owed money to GCC for developing the system under their development contract. Warner didn't care about releasing the system anymore, so they didn't want to pay the remainder of the development cost on it. They wanted Jack to take that over because he would be the interested party. Jack, being a guy who never spends a buck that he doesn't have to, we talked about (laughs) that before. (laughs) Yes, we have. Of course, wanted Warner to pay it. And, you know, technically Warner did have to pay it, but the thing is, Warner could just sit on it and tie it up in litigation, arbitration or whatever forever and not care because they never planned to release it anyway. Whereas Jack needed this thing to be settled to release it. So they finally worked something out where, you know, he finally got control of it. But the reason that the 7800 was not released immediately after Jack bought the company Mm -hmm. was not because he was uninterested in releasing a video game. It's because he literally didn't own it. (laughs) (laughs) But he was still half-hearted about video games. I mean, let's not oversell. His focus was the ST computer that he wanted to create. So under Jack, there was never going to be the support. Jack alienated retailers. Jack hated advertising. He did not like spending money on marketing. I mean, you can never be certain with counterfactuals, but I think this counterfactual is pretty safe. It's pretty safe to say that Atari alone could not have done what Nintendo did to revive the market. Sega, maybe. You know, I mean, Sega would have had to take a similar approach to Nintendo where they really worked the retailers hard and did test markets and this and that. But Sega might have been able to do it. I mean, if Nintendo wasn't around, then Sega would have presumably started doing something, would have gotten contracts with the third parties to to get the hottest Japanese games on their system and whatnot. I mean, it's not that somebody other than Nintendo couldn't have done it. Nintendo did it first. Yeah, it's just that Nintendo happened to be the one that did it and they deserve the credit for that. Yeah, that, that's another kind of myth, uh, more about the post-crash period than about the crash period, but another myth that, that persists that I don't think is useful. <laughs> that pretty much covers everything, I want to say, <laughs> or at least a whole of major uh, bot points. Right, I think so. You know, the, the final thing you can take away of it is, I guess, kind of the impact. I mean, we already talked about the impact in financial terms. But it really altered the worldwide industry, even though the crash didn't affect the entire world. It was just the United States. Right. But it's because of the crash that the Japanese basically seized control of the video game industry and did not let go of it for, what, 15 years or even 20 years, if you want to go all the way up to kind of the Xbox 360. I mean, obviously, the Xbox started the process, but the PS2 is still so dominant. I mean, the the Japanese controlled the global video game industry for 20 years because of the crash, because the Americans were just so destroyed by what happened. That was a major impact of the crash, a, a complete paradigm shift. Some of that shift would have taken place anyway. The Japanese were coming in more and more and more in the arcade. We brought this up before. The Japanese stuff was coming in with all sorts of things. Cars, computers, consumer electronics. And that's why you had everything going on with the Commodore 64 being lower priced to stop them Mm -hmm. from getting into computers. Right. If a viable Atari, especially if Atari had made that Famicom deal, A viable Atari might have been able to maintain a leadership position in the home market, at least for a little bit longer. But in the arcade, the writing was already on the wall. They came in slowly. They started by licensing their product to local American companies. Then they started founding their own American subsidiaries 
but only releasing kits directly and still having the American companies with factories do their manufacturing of their uprights and their full games. Then they move from there to setting up their own factories. So that creep in the arcade was coming. It was probably accelerated a little bit by the crash, but it was coming. In the home, it may have been a little different, at least for a while longer. But the Japanese would have started infiltrating a bit at some point. It's just that they wouldn't have necessarily completely dominated. Hmm. I mean, there was just, there was nobody worth mentioning practically that were involved in the console market in the U.S. until the early 90s when Electronic Arts got in. I mean, there was a claim, but a claims, a lot of a claims early software was not American software. They were getting software that they sourced from Japanese developers, as we talked about. So they were a major publisher, but all their software was coming from Japan and England. Hmm. And, you know, Activision was there, but they weren't very big. The big guys were Konami and Capcom and Data East and all of those guys. I mean, it was just a complete overwhelming of the local industry. Atari was there, but Atari was not doing much. So that's one of the long-term effects. The other long-term effect is, of course, the industry remained spooked forever. Every time there was just a little bit of a downturn, there was always talk that there would be another crash. Oh, yeah. I mean, decades later. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it, it kept the industry very gun-shy for a while in that sense. It, it took a lot longer for the industry to coalesce and start taking on the, the trappings of an industry, as we discussed before. Part of the reason why it's become this mythologized event is it remained a specter hanging over the video game industry for years and years afterwards. And still is, arguably. Yeah, not, not nearly as much anymore. I mean, it's still brought up from time to time. Sometimes people will say, you know, could there be another crash? Will there be another crash? Even if the market were to suddenly crash again today, it feels like, which I, I don't think is that likely, but it feels like it would be more like the arcade crash, mm-hmm. where it would be a market correction, where there would be a reduction, maybe even a sharp reduction. But at this point, it wouldn't go away. Video games are too ingrained. Over 1 billion people around the world play video games today. Now, that's not just console games. That's including stuff on your phone and whatnot. Mm -hmm. A billion people aren't going to suddenly decide they want to do something else. They might decide to play it in different ways. It might not be on a console 20 years from now. It might not even be on a computer. Right. I Um, mean, most people's main computer really isn't a big desktop anymore it Mm -hmm. it is a laptop it is a cell phone your cell phone your phone book your ipad your whatever tablet you have for the average person that's their main machine right but interactive entertainment is too ingrained there are too many people that want to participate in interactive entertainment for it to truly vanish at this point it'll change it always changes but it's not going to go away. So I think they've finally shaken that kind of image. Another interesting kind of impact, and this is harder to measure, mm-hmm. it may have delayed the adoption of gaming amongst women. Really? It's always difficult to tell these demographics, but you know, Pac-Man was very popular with women, not just with men. And... Video games were, as a result of this, I mean, something that makes $8.9 billion is not targeting just one demographic Mm -hmm. to make that money. It's basically hitting all demographics. 
So in the arcade, you were getting adult players. You were getting female players. You're getting kids, teenagers, young mm-hmm. adults, elderly. And so there was an inclusiveness that was starting to form. You don't want you don't want to take that too far, but there may have been upwards of forty percent of game players for a time. There may have been women. Now women make up just over half of the population. So if they were pulling their quote unquote fair share, they'd be you know fifty one or fifty two percent of all game players. And obviously that wasn't happening. But they were starting to become interested. And then when the crash happened, you kind of had your retrenching back to core audiences kind of thing. And so you really kind of the marketing fell back to six to twelve year old boys for home consoles mm-hmm. uh, when the NES came along. Even then, they learned eventually that about 30% of their players were women. Now, again, if women were really pulling their share, it should be 52%. So that's still a minority. But, you know, it's a pretty sizable number. And they started to try to exploit that. Capcom, for instance, made a Little Mermaid game. There were Barbie games made. I remember. But there was great difficulty kind of trying to capture that female audience, I think, in part because all the game designers were male and didn't really understand what little girls wanted. I don't know. And if they did, they went too far in the extreme. My sister, she played games almost as much as I did. And we did have a couple of girl-centric games, and one of these being the Barbie on Nintendo. And both of us hated it. (laughs) Not just me. Her, the target audience, hated it. Right. (laughs) And it was just because it was a bad and hard, bad game. And so you wonder if that inclusiveness could have been carried forward from the Atari era if there hadn't been that interruption and that retreat back to core audiences. And maybe not. That's one of those things that's harder to quantify. It's speculation. It halted. I mean, everything stopped midstream. We, we talked about how the industry was in the verge of coalescing into a real industry, how, you know, the arcades and the home computers and all this were all in the process of coalescing into a real industry. We talked about how they were in the process of expanding to more mainstream demographics. All of these things were going on, and then the crash just reset everything it pretty much it set everything back to where it started it put it back to the early 70s it had to build that all back up again it had to build up over a decade again i mean the video game industry didn't hit three billion dollars again until like the early 90s i mean even when nintendo was doing well in 1986 and 1987 and 1988 the market still hadn't risen back up to the same level that it had been in the early 80s. And remember, you have about five to five or six years of inflation in there, too, which isn't necessarily a significant amount of inflation, but things are more expensive, and, and NES cartridges are often more expensive than uh, VCS cartridges were. So the fact that it took so long for the industry to surpass where it had been, you know, the first time around shows how far they had to come back. Because even when they were successful again, they still weren't as successful right away as as they were at the height of the initial Atari boom. Yeah. One hundred million is yeah, what they, they to, were. They had to climb, yeah, climb out from, uh, from 100 million all the way back up. Yeah, the the long-ranging effects of it were just something else. And... Really, Nintendo was necessary because if they had just gone about and built the industry again the same way it was built the first time, same thing would have happened. It would have exploded within 10 to 15 years. Or or less. But because Nintendo 
really studied, and they did. They they specifically studied what they felt Atari and the other companies had done wrong the first time around. That's why they came up with their controls. I mean, people talk about how Nintendo was arrogant and overbearing and authoritative and or authoritarian, and certainly they were. Maybe some of that. I'm sure some of that came from a desire to be in control. I mean, people yeah. like being in control. We like having the power. But it really was exactly what needed to happen in order to bring the industry back. They had to stop the channels from being flooded with product. They had to stop retailers from ordering more product than the market could bear. They had to make sure that retailers didn't start cutting prices, leading to bargain basement discount software that undercut new releases. These were just necessary steps to create an industry. And I know I've hit on that several times now, and I hit on that several times on a Nintendo episode, but because there's often such a backlash against what Nintendo did, I still think it just bears repeating how horrific the situation was in the industry and how absolutely necessary Nintendo's actions were to bring it back. That's pretty much it. The only other thing I I can think to uh, talk about is honestly the possibility of another crash in the future. I know you said it wasn't going to be a complete crash again, and I, I can certainly see that. But something you and I talked about earlier about just in the general industry that had to do with how innovation is just done by the people who've already have done it before. And you have a lot of burnout in the industry, especially with coders and programmers. I I know this myself from doing it with my own job. It's not a gratifying job sometimes because you don't really see your product get done. You're typing code and you may spend hours, days, weeks, trying to solve some sort of weird problem. And as far as the end user is concerned, they don't know the kind of effort that went into putting that tree over there or that lamppost over there or solving that little bug that you just whacked your brain around for half a month. Sure. I can definitely see the AAA console market having difficulties because at this point, game development has gotten so expensive. And will only continue to get more expensive as hardware improves. Because when you talk about upping the resolution, as when everything went HD and as everything's going to go 4K eventually. And if not higher, especially with the virtual reality, you're going to have to come up with how do you do things in a 360 degree sphere. As the resolutions increase, you need far more detail for graphics not to look terrible. Far more detail takes far more time. Far more time means far more people. Far more people means paying far more people means budgets skyrocket. We have seen games within just three console generations going from, you know, teams of 15 to 20 people spending 10 to 20 million dollars on a game to teams of 400 people spending 300 million dollars on a game. And it's had a negative effect on publishers. There's been a hollowing out of the middle, the mid-tier publishers. At the start of the previous console generation, Xbox 360, PS3, Wii, in the United States and Europe, so excluding Japan, 
in terms of major publishers, you had Electronic Arts, you had Activision, you had Take-Two, you had Ubisoft, you had IDOS, Midway, Atari, not the original Atari, long story, but Atari, THQ, LucasArts, and then obviously you had like the, the hardware developers like Microsoft, but we're excluding the first parties right now. You know, you had this big group of publishers. Mm-hmm. What basically happened is game development became so expensive that a mid-tier publisher couldn't survive anymore. Vivendi. I knew I forgot one. You had Vivendi. (laughs) Activision and Vivendi combined, and LucasArts went away because Walt Disney bought uh, Lucasfilm. THQ couldn't hack it and disintegrated. Midway couldn't hack it and disintegrated. Atari couldn't hack it, and essentially doesn't exist anymore. It's not a AAA publisher anymore. And IDOS couldn't hack it and got bought by Square Enix. So you had all of these major publishers, some of them going back decades, who suddenly all failed within the course of, you know, three or four years. And it got to the point where only the biggest studios could afford to create these games. We sort of touched on this uh, a few times in some other episodes where the stakes just keep going up and up and up and development costs keep rising. And if you can't innovate and make enough money and expand and develop, you're going to fail. Exactly. So it's possible development costs will get so high that it becomes impossible for even these big companies to recoup their costs on most of their games. And you just are left with a very shallow market of sequels and retreads that eventually people just get sick of and go do something else. I mean, that's that's something that could theoretically happen. You could get a bust that way just because development costs get too high. You know, you don't think from the talent issue? I mean, that, you know, the brain drain thing could become an issue 20 years down the line. You know, a lot of people get burned out, and then, you know, our major game creators today tend to be our same people who are major game creators 20 years ago in the AAA space. We're not talking about people uh, in the indie space like Notch or Jonathan Blow or, or whatnot, but our major creators are the same people that were 20 years ago, and it feels like people are leaving the industry when they're still junior level rather than moving into middle management, and that could create a crisis at some point in terms of labor as well, though it's kind of too early to to see whether that'll happen because obviously it doesn't matter if only 10% of people are going to advance to middle management anyway, or 20% of people just to pull a random figure, then it doesn't matter if you burn out 80% of your people because you'll still have enough people to fill those positions down the line. But that is a concern that you don't have the people in AAA development necessarily as invested in game development long-term, which could create a, a brain drain. There are structural reasons to think that the current state of affairs cannot persist. Now, does that mean that there's going to be a crash? I don't know about that. I think it's more likely that there'd be some kind of market correction in in that case rather than an out-and-out crash. But Certainly something to keep an eye on in the future. Right. But so far, every time they've said that something's going to, you know, overrun consoles, they've been wrong. I mean, mobile was going to kill this generation of consoles. This generation of consoles wasn't going to sell anything. And both the Xbox One and the PS4 are tracking well ahead of where the Xbox 360 and the PS3 were in this point in their life cycle. You know, the industry is still strong. And it doesn't feel like the industry's necessarily overheated at this point. It's just, you know, you worry about structural deficiencies. But 
those wouldn't necessarily be corrected by a crash. They would just be corrected by Downturn. old com- yeah, old companies failing and, and new companies rising to the challenge kind of thing. So we'll see. Certainly something to look forward to. Well, that pretty much covered everything I think I want to touch on as far as the great crash goes. What about you, Alex? I think we've been pretty thorough in this series of episodes. All right, Alex. I think altogether that brings us to about three and a half hours of content here. Wow. And I guess that now leaves us with what are we going to do after a three-parter on the great big crash? Well, we've kind of discussed the end of an era here with the crash, certainly the end of the first period of video game history, so it seems kind of fitting then to go all the way back to the beginning and one of the very first commercial video games, which was Galaxy Game. Galaxy Game. Which was based on Space War and came out on test in November 1971, the same month the computer space came out. And I know there are some people that heard me say that and they're going to just be thinking to themselves right now, but wait a minute. It came out in September 1971. What's he saying November for? Does he know what he's talking about? The answer to that is yes, because I had the great privilege to interview Hugh Tuck, the co-creator of Galaxy Game, the other month, and he provided me with a business plan that he and his partner Bill Pitts created in early 1972 discussing how they were planning to market the Galaxy game, which they never ended up doing. They never went beyond the prototype. This is a document nobody knew existed before because Hugh Tuck hadn't ever been interviewed. Bill Pitts has been interviewed many times, but he had forgotten this document even existed because when I contacted Hugh, Hugh was going through his files to see what he had, found the business plan, told Bill about it because they're still good friends, and then Bill told him, I didn't even remember we did a business plan. So this is essentially the world premiere of information from this business plan, and it doesn't have many or shattering revelations in it, but one of the things that it does confirm is that they did not put the game on location until November, not September. So, yes, Galaxy Game, November 1971, dawn of the video game industry, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. All right, that sounds great. And we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by Rollum music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license (laughs) 